Hey guys, uh, it's we're back, and it's another wonderful conversation in my living room. Um, I have a friend here. I have my dog. We have a window with ambient sounds, so we're just gonna do our best. So I would like to introduce my friend Jess. Yeah. Hi. Hi. And Jess and I are gonna have a conversation about her journey. And I'm um, hoping that uh, it may, you know, touch someone out there who maybe needs to hear uh, about how um, enduring and messy recovery can be, which is also my story. So, so Jess, you want to just start by, let's start with a little bit of like, what led you into 12 step? Like, what were the things that led you there? And then we'll kind of talk about the messy journey in your recovery process. Um, I was diagnosed with an eating disorder when I was 13. Um, I have memories of binge eating. Like my earliest memories in life are of me being rejected and binge eating. Oh, okay. And when I was 12, I had a brief instance with anorexia. Okay. Um, very common and very common age. I also come from like a very judgmental, affluent town. Yeah. Where there's very little acceptance for any sort of deviation. And it's basically like if you're not in this 10% of perfection, then, like, your life is right. Wrong. Like, you lo- you lose the game. Right. And so I was rejected for, like, m- like all of my earliest memories are of rejection. And then I think I... Rejection and binge eating. And then I think I switched to anorexia right before attending middle school mm-hmm. as an attempt to, like, be accepted. Okay. And then after that, um, my pediatrician diagnosed me as having an eating disorder. And then my parents, who are, like, very loving Mm -hmm. in a very, like, traditional, like, capitalist way. Yeah, yeah. They swoop in with money and attention and drugs and very well-intentioned. But um, they swooped in, got me on antidepressants, and put me in eating disorder treatment centers and basically force fed me and were sneaking calories into my food for like a couple years. And then by the time I was like 15, I switched back over to binge eating. Okay. And I just like tried to be normal while I was in a raging eating disorder. Okay. Um, and I, you know, there's, like, some developmental chapters that happened. Like, I went to college, I dropped out of college, I dated, it, like, heartbroken, blah, blah, blah. But when I was in college, my binge eating was just out of control. Okay. And I remember talking to my dad, and my dad is sober. Um, He's familiar with 12-step groups. And I remember he literally Googled, like, how, like, ways for me to get support, and one of them was OA. Oh, okay. And I was living in Chicago at the time, Um, so I started going to OA there and I had like several sponsors, um, nothing stuck. Right. 
I was not ready. Yeah. Um, I, and how old are you at this time? I'm 33. So it's, at that time when she... No, now I'm 33. 33. Okay. So this, I was probably like, I was probably like 22 or 23. So my introduction to 12-step programs is like 10 years ago. Right. And I feel like I am only now really in the program. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's been wild. Um, so that was in Chicago with the OA in Chicago. Yeah. And what was that like? Um, I remember, so like, it's weird when you're growing up trying to be normal and you have whatever the fuck normal means when you have this enormous secret of how you hurt yourself and hate yourself every day. And so, so it was weird for you to grow up. And have that in Chicago? Well, it's just been weird my whole life. Right. And when I came into the, like, carrying that secret yes. of this self-harm that oh, I right. could not yes. escape. Yeah. Coming into a way, it was like, that was the first time where people were saying things uh, right. where I was like, whoa, like, the eating out of the trash, the right. theft, like, all of the, the extreme shame behaviors that right. I've been unable to explain for myself and want right. to repeat them to hear other people say that they do those things yeah that was my first time being like whoa yeah um and what was that like for you just to be in a room where other people are like because I've talked about this before like my first time like and I'm not a crier I just started mm. crying I couldn't believe that other people so it was like a seed that got planted because I felt, on one hand, I felt a level of being seen in a way and understood in a way that I had never before, but at the same time, so much of my defense mechanism in life has been identity construction and ego construction. Right. And at this point in my life, I was going to art school and I had like kind of started rejecting some capitalist narrative about what success is yeah and I had been like okay I'm gonna try I'm gonna try going to art school I'm gonna try actually doing what I want right and I was like really clinging to this idea of like being a young artist in art school right and so even though I was hearing this message from people like I was still very compartmentalized by my ego and I had not destroyed myself enough to be like I am an open vessel to this message right I see wow okay but yeah it planted a seed planted a seed and then I left Chicago but I do when we loop back to where I'm at now I have a really amazing story because the person that brought me back into program is someone this was only a few months ago. She's a recruiter and I'm a graphic designer and we had a Zoom meeting. She's in Portland now. And I was like, how the fuck do I know you? Right. And she was like, we put it together. We were like, are you in recovery? Right, right. We put it together that we used to go to the same meetings in Chicago. Oh, wow. And she was like, I go to this 7 o'clock p.m. virtual meeting every Monday. You should come. 
and she's the reason that I'm back in OA and abstinent. And that happened only a few months ago. Oh wow! After a bunch of shit. Yeah. Honestly. But um, which we're gonna get to the bunch of shit. Okay, so back to Chicago art school. It was too young. Too young, not ready, too wrapped up in my sense of myself, which I've been in my whole life. Right. My whole life. Um, and I left Chicago and I came to back to Portland. And you say back to Portland. I'm from, well, I'm, I grew up in Lake Oswego. Okay. Which is a very affluent, yeah. white, AP classes only. Yeah. Like, high pressure on athletics, academic performance, yeah, being, you know, just the perfectionist. Yeah, just like your your heart rate is not the main concern. In like us, we go the right. heart. Your resume is the main concern, right? And. I'm like really having to relearn everything about what love means because yeah. of where I grew up. Yeah. Um I don't fault my parents. They were yeah. doing their best, but anyway. Father Terry calls that the ego dream. You know, it's just and again, I, I don't want to disparage people because I I know people who have recovery in Lake Oswego. It's not it's the atmosphere and it's you know the sort of the ego dream of money and success and beauty physical beauty and you know that to be honest like if any one of us had won that dream we wouldn't be here it's the struggle for well who knows? Then you get spiritual people who sometimes they get the ego dream and then they get there and they're like, what? Are you kidding? Like, they're rich, they're famous, they're gorgeous. And they're like, this is this is nothing. And, but not everyone does that. And so to grow up in an environment where people seem to be winning the ego dream of fame, fortune, beauty, like they're the ones like, oh, we made it. This, we made it. Um... But when my experience in, in listening to people is when we don't make the ego dream. And even at very young, like you're not you're not doing it right, you know, and you're not you're not representing us right. We need you to be perfect and good grades and go to school and whatever. We need you to fit this picture. And when you and this is my experience, it wasn't Lake Oswego, but it was a small town version of that. You know, and it's like, you are ruining our picture here. Um, you know, and because my parents were, you know, middle class and very good looking and very into, you know, we've arrived, you know, and you need to be part of this arrival trophy, you know, and I wasn't. Um, so, uh, so that's where you're from. And so, again, it makes sense to me, the sort of detoxing that um false self so you're here and then you go to chicago and then you come back i come back i kind of burnt out on chicago i was just lost i graduated college and i had jobs i didn't like and you know i had my first experience working in an office offices are to to this day really struggle with those environments because like i just remember you know, 
just treats, just so many treats being brought into his office. And it was like, I was binging my face off and I couldn't concentrate. Like, I was just spinning my wheels trying to function, but like actively in my sugar addiction and no one understood. And everyone is just like, haha, I ate another one of those things. I'm like, you literally don't understand. Like, I am sick. Like, like I, I it's like, yeah. it's like an alcoholic or like a drug addict, like trying to function with while you're on a hangover. Right. But it's like the drug that is in the kitchen and making yeah. other people happy. Yeah. And yeah. Just, so I guess like working in a corporate environment, if there was an open bar. Yeah. All the time. All day. Yeah, all day. And all you're day. an alcoholic and it's like there's an open bar right there. And then yeah. you make yourself sick and then you have to go back the next day. And then when you feel like shit, you just continue to make yourself sick. Yeah. In order to deal with the fact yeah. that you're awake. Yeah. And in so much like yeah pain. That sounds horrible. So, yeah. And that has been a theme that has been with me my whole life. And I had a revelation about how I'm going to deal with going into the office Literally this morning. <laughs> um, but so I just burnt out, got burnt out on the winters there. And then I came to Portland and I was like, I was sober at the time. And I Is was this like, when we met? This coming back to, so. yeah, with the I, blonde hair. Yeah, yeah. 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 That was when I moved back from Chicago. Yeah. And. I was going to OA, struggling, I was still binging, I was living with my parents, Yeah. huge trigger, Right. which, you know, when you're taught as a child that money is important and you don't have a job, like, I lived with my parents because I was just like, I cannot risk depleting my savings for my mental health, so I will live with them until I get my shit figured out, but living with them every time I do it, yeah, it just, they trigger me, their kitchen triggers me, my memories trigger me, I am small, rejected Jess yeah. in a land of abundance where people want to feed me and they don't care if I steal their shit because they don't think about food in the same way that I do. Right. So I came back to Portland... I was binging, but going to OA, but yeah. still binging, but still not ready to be an empty vessel to the program. And then I started going to AA. And then AA in Portland. And at this point, I have not figured out that I have unhealthy relationships with romantic partners yet. Yeah. So I see this guy that, you know, I had seen actually in a previous chapter in Portland. And I was like, holy fuck, he's sober. Like, I remember that dude used to scare the shit out of me. And I started dating this guy that I meet in AA. And, like, he did plant a lot of seeds. Yeah. Spiritual blossoming for me and messages that, like, I don't know if I would have been exposed to had I not met him. Yeah. But, uh, he... I remember him because... You brought him to an OA meeting once. He had the face tattoos. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah, so we were, you know, there was, there was love there, but, and he was trying to support me, but everything was a mess, right? Everything, like, every aspect of my life was a fucking mess, and I was trying to do the right thing, but, like, never really fully surrendering. Right. 
And so, anyway, he ended up relapsing, passing away. I found out that he had been cheating on me um, the whole time. Were you together when you relapsed and passed away? Well, I knew that our relationship was just, like, it just felt really fucked up. So we had been, like... I'd been like, I need a break, but I love you. But I, you know, when you're like 23 and you're just like, I love you, but I like have no sense of boundaries or right. when to let yeah. go. So I'm clinging to this thing that is hurting me. Right. Actually, I was doing that in all areas of my life. Um, so I had like, it was like the week before he died. I was like, I was like, I cannot do this anymore. And then he left a note on my car that week, and it was a cute note. And then he died, and then that happened. And then after that, I mean, still processing that, but after that, I dated another person I met in AA, like very shortly after he jumped into a new relationship. Right. That relationship also ended up very explosively, and after that, I was just like, fuck 12 steps I was like I was like I was like I'm still binging my face off and I just I just keep meeting people who are like like incurring more messiness in my life so I had not emptied myself fully to like the actual program right right I had not done that and so it didn't work because I wasn't ready yeah and um I had a lot of resentment towards the program because I could never get abstinent. And oh, so I yeah. felt so much like, like, I, it's like, I felt like shame, like just so much shame, which I don't know how other people viewed me, but that was my experience. Yeah. And so I left and, um, I moved to LA. I was in another long distance relationship or I was in, I was in another relationship. This one happened to be long distance. Mm-hmm. And I, I moved to LA and I was like, I'm not in recovery. I'm going to, I'm going to like put on my big girl pants. I'm going to get like a big girl job and I'm going to just like hang out with artists. I'm just going to hang out with musicians. I'm just going to take photos. This is my life now. All the other chapters didn't happen. Right. And I'm just going to ignore my eating disorder because if I focus on it, then I won't have a life. And LA was great, but it was chaotic, and I have a lot of memories of binging. And I wasn't in recovery. Um, I kept binging, but I also was having periods of like because there's a lot of there's a lot of excitement there that's external. Right. That was kind of my motivation. Was like let's try to let's try to like not gain weight. So that you can, like, fit in with this excitement. Right. But none of this was spiritual. It was just, like, I'm going to try really hard to have a fucking life. Right. Um, and then, that I'm super grateful for that chapter. I learned a lot. But that relationship ended up exploding. Right. And then I moved to San Francisco. Yeah. Also, still not in recovery. But I moved right. to San Francisco for a job. And it was in an office, and I was binging. Uh, I'm just telling the whole story. Yeah, Is that okay? Yeah, no, that's really fine. Okay. Um, I was binging my face off, 
super struggling in my eating disorder. Also really struggling with a feeling of isolation, not having friends, and res- being resentful towards my job because it there it was expected of me to have like very poor work life boundaries. Yeah. Um. And. I was struggling super hard. Like, I remember on Fridays, I would go home by myself and just binge the whole way home. And I would start binging at the office, and then I would binge for two hours, and then I would pass out, and it'd be Saturday, and I was alone, and I would hate myself. And the only thing I had to look forward to was, like, walking to the ocean. Right. And I remember just sitting there and being like, I'm fucking alone. Like, life feels meaningless. Like, I'm making money. I've done things I wanted to try, but, like, everything feels so empty. Right. Then the pandemic hit, and I got laid off, and I came back to Portland. Oh, okay. Great. (laughs) Now we're back in Portland. Okay. We're back in Portland, and then I moved back in with my parents. And when is this? I mean, obviously, 20, 2020. March 2020. So okay. I, I'm like, I'm fucking 30, and I'm living with my parents, and my mom was diagnosed with cancer, and I was so in my disease that I didn't care. I was just binging in her house, right. feeling like my life was meaningless. And all I could think about was how I couldn't go a day without binging and how all I wanted to do was binge. Right. And my mom is, like, crying, being like, I'm going to have my breast removed. And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, why do you keep cheese in the fridge? Because I binge every day. Like, this is how selfish my disease has made me. Right, right. My whole life. Yeah. But it's been, like, selfishness disguised in suffering. Yeah. Um, my binging gets so bad, I'm really not emotionally available to be a support system for her. I was just really selfish the whole time, also right. really suffering. Um, not in recovery, just trying to be like, maybe someday I'll wake up and be perfect, and maybe I'll never eat again, and I'll just, it was like binging and then fantasizing about being perfect, like every day. Um, and then I moved out because my binging was so bad. How's your mom? She's good. She had surgery, and I was present to the extent that I could be, but not. Right. You know? Yeah. And actually, that's been a common theme, where someone else really needed help from me, and, and I was not available. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, so you move out. So I move out, and then... Where do you move to? I'm in northwest Portland. Okay. Um, actually, pretty close to where my mom lives now. Um... And a couple years go by, I'm not in recovery, um, I'm, like, dating someone who's very active in AA, and he's, I'm so grateful for this person, because, like, he's, like, fucking saved me a few times, but, um, he's, he introduced me to non-monogamy which was interesting because that is where some of the narratives that I've realized I've like had about life started to unpeel the narratives from my childhood about like be perfect get married have kids right you know like the linear linear shit that has 
been part of my disease, yeah. these linear expectations. He's kind of what helped me like unlock this and be like, it's good and bad in the in the way that you have been taught. Yeah, are not necessarily. Whenever um, you, my experience is, is, it doesn't have to be the polyamory community, but often, whenever you get invited into a subculture, it's sort of, you know, whether it's queer or polyamory or something else that's outside of this sort of mainstream, here's the formula for success. It does sort of all of a sudden open your eyes in so many different ways around like, oh, there are so many ways to do this. There's so many ways to love and be loved. There are so many ways of having family, of having whatever. It just really does go like, wait a minute. Because, yeah, we are, um, in a large extent, really brainwashed into what success looks like, what a family looks like, what parenting looks you know. And it's so predominant that it's, it's like trying to explain water to a fish. I mean, you don't even see it until and it's one thing when you know you may hear other things but it's always a disparaging you know like oh so it's not like you didn't know maybe those things existed but the lens at which you're being told about them is that they're it's it's disparaging like that they're amoral or that there's and then when you sometimes end up in these uh, subcultures, whether, like I said, whether it's queer or even interracial. I mean, all anything that kind of cracks open, like, oh, that was brainwashing. <laughs> and there are actually many ways of doing this. And then fortunately, people have come before you and they, you know, a lot of in the community and they're like, yeah, and guess what? There's a whole history of this. This isn't new, you know what I mean? Like the different kinds of relationship, the different kinds of love. And we've been around forever. We just haven't been validated or recognized or acknowledged, you know? But but we've been here the whole time, right? So it kind of sounds like that was the experience with the polyamory is sort of taking you outside of that. Does that sound... Yeah. I think so much of this disease for me and the disease of just addiction in general is just mine really comes from not feeling perfect and so I isolate myself but the perfectionism comes from being exposed to certain narratives and like dogmas where you feel like okay that's the way but like it doesn't fit so, like, there's something wrong with me. So, like, I need to be alone. Right. Because, like, I'm bad. Right. And so this person has been kind of, like, a key player in being, like... Like, he practices non-monogamy with, like, very ethically, very morally. Yeah. I know a lot of people out there do not. Well, you know, for people who don't know, try reading Ethical Slut. I mean, you know what I mean? That was a foundational book. That again, yeah, it's all, it's above board. It's not, so again, I'm glad. Let's dilate for just a second. Yeah. What Jess and I are talking about is um, consensual, ethical, non-monogamy. 
We are not talking about some player out there Correct. cheating on all these people. Everyone involved knows what's the, and, and agrees and wants the same thing. And that's why, you know, there's a book out there called Ethical Slut, which is just, I'm sure there are plenty since, but when I was your, younger than you, that was the book that came out that's like, no. You know, you, you have a conversation about it. You talk about what your boundaries are, what you're into, what you're not into. Just in terms, we're not even talking about, like, kinky stuff. We're talking about, like, I, want, I need to be your primary partner. What does that mean? That means that, you know, if it's between me and someone else, I need you to pick me. Or, you know, someone says, I can't be your primary partner. You know what I mean? Like, I cannot be your... the the place that you come home to every night. I need to be the second or third tier person, you know, so, uh, but that's outside of the scope of this podcast, but I do want to at least just address like, no, there's, you know, there's a whole very healthy communicative um, guideline or whatever you want to call it, consensus, consensual, you know, around this. So anyway, so, and at the same time, I want to bring it back to you, which is, is that, you know, this moving into, it's like, oh, this, this deconstructing can happen in a way where it's not this angst rebellion, you know, it's not the chaos of being on the outside. Does that sound kind of right? You mean because there's like enhanced transparency? Oh, well, you mean like not being othered? By right. being exposed to something that's different than the narrative, than, like, yeah. the mainstream narrative, and being like, oh, this is actually okay. Right. Obviously, if it's practiced. So, I want to bring it back, and again, this is just us enjoying getting into this stuff. So, there you are, mainstream, feeling like, and this is where we have kind of a similar, like, I don't belong here. Mm-hmm. And so, there's this sort of angry, angst, you know, punk girl, whatever, and you keep mentioning chaos. So I'm going to, you know, go over here into these othered communities, you know, and sometimes they're not, even though it's great and awesome, you know, there's a prevalence of self-destructive behavior versus um, finding an othered community where it's like, we're not into self-destruction. Does that sound? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so you can be, you can be in a community that's alternative without the angry angst. Yeah, it can be very constructive and healing. Exactly. Yeah. And realizing, like, and that's what I mean, like, sort of the mind, really, mind opening, like, oh, so, and this is Jess and I just self-indulgent because we love these things. So there's, like, this sort of um, mainstream paradigm, right? Mm-hmm. Here's how you're supposed to do life. I call this the matrix. The matrix is bigger than, than this, but yes. That's why I don't call it that. Mm. Um, so, but let's just, for other people, like, you're in this, referring to the movie, The Matrix, you're in The Matrix, you know? I can't do it. It still doesn't work for me because The Matrix is bigger than that. Okay. <laughs> So this mainstream paradigm of, like, here's how you do life. First of all, you're heterosexual. Second of all, it's 
you know, Christo-Judaism, you know, it's the sons of Abraham, definitely. Uh, you know, two parents and you have kids. Uh, you get educated, you make money, and then you go for the step. Like, here's how you do life. Here's, and this is what I mean when Father Terry calls it the ego dream. You know what I mean? Like, and and here, and if you do these things, you will feel, as, then we welcome you into our, our community and we will validate and we see ourselves in you because we have this collective agreement that this is the right way of doing life. Well, if you don't want to do that, but yet, if so I didn't want to do that, and yet I was in a family that was doing that very well. And so I was supposed to be the family picture of like, so that my parents could do it. And I have cousins and it's like, they were able to do this, do a family photo. And it's better than, it's better than the Brady Bunch because those kids, those adults had been widowed and came together and those weren't their natural kids like like a real like Donna Reed whatever kind of like and I wasn't doing that and I actually didn't want any of this even though I didn't have words for it there was something that it was like this doesn't feel right for me I'm not saying it's not right for the people I'm not I don't want to be the I don't want to do to them what they did to me which is I'm now going to judge you wrong I'm judging you I'm going to disparage you you disparaged me I'm going to disparage no that's fine people are really happy in that I don't have any argument with that what I have is that you indoctrinated me to think that this was the only way to have a successful life and some part of me knew that this wasn't true. Um, and so the, the only thing that I think is readily available to us as young people is music. Mm. And then you hear about these people, bands, whatever. For me, it was, you know, punk rock, you know, and everything and the Sex Pistols. But still the idea of like these artists, you know, that's the first introduction to... Fuck you. Living. Yes. Alternative living. So that then the immediate entryway into that for better or for worse is music, drugs, alcohol. That becomes your first validation that there are people out there who are saying, no, fuck you. This doesn't work. And so again, that identification. So my story in that was Oh, well, I am wired as a social being. You know what I mean? Like psychopaths. It's psychopaths go off on their own and make no connection. You know, that is like very mentally unhealthy. As a social being, I need a community. You know, even if the community itself is self-destructive, it doesn't matter. I'm wired to need people. So then I will, you know, and I did find these alternative communities and they're just very, and because music was the entryway to that, you know, there was just, and, and polyamory, there's just a lot of self-destructive 
behavior. Mm -hmm. So there's no breaks there. There's no one going to intervene on me and say, hey, you're living a really dark life. You know what I mean? You're really, you're really living a self-destructive life. For me, those alternative communities were invested in me because the common agreement was like, yeah, the only way to say no is to self-destruct ourselves. You know what I mean? And it's like, and I did until, again, some core part of me was like, this isn't the answer either. Yeah, there's a lot of false, false idolization in the music scene. Right. It's vast. Music has been like a huge saving energy force in my life because it's like when you're fucking alone sometimes like I came I've come to understand music is just recorded messages that people want us to receive yeah it's a it's another form it's another way for people to connect and so there have been times there was a chapter very recently where I was so in my disease that I blocked all of my contacts except for my work connections and my parents because I hated myself so much didn't know that's what was going on I thought I hated everyone else music was the only thing that I had tethering me to anything outside of myself yeah but at the same time there's a lot of false like in that way it's beautiful there's a lot of false idolization in that whole world and so it's it's like the music world is fucking messy well, wherever there are humans, it's going to be messy. Like, you know, whenever you have humans doing anything together, we bring with us, you know what I mean, our gifts and our wounds and, you know. But anyway, I want to get back to, like, so this this part of the conversation all started because of your intro into, intro into polyamory. So, again, this... So leading, you know, again, is if we evolve from that, so you get into like the music alternative scene where it's very, very self-destructive. It's alternative, but self-destructive. So it sounds like the evolution of, uh, into this polyamorous community and people, and again, I just want to say for people who are listening, it doesn't have to be the polyamorous community. It's just, again, an alternative community but this time it's not centered around self-destruction correct and i don't think music has to be it doesn't have to be there's a lot of it there's a lot of it but for those of us who are wounded Mm -hmm. and angry Mm -hmm. you know what i mean when we go into the alternative communities we're gonna find like when we yes when we're young and we want to be like, fuck you and fuck me, I hate you, I hate me, you know what I mean? Or whatever it is, when we find music, yeah, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to see, I don't even know who, I was going to see the alternative angry, you know, music, although it's not true, I was like mod and everything and new wave and punk and everything. But the point is, is that, I gravitated towards the music scene where there were a lot of drugs and alcohol and there did seem to be a lot of like 
depressed. I mean, Morrissey. I mean, come on. You know what I mean? So, you know? So, uh, so anyway, so then we're in the polyamory. And when was this? Was like a year ago? Two years ago? Two years ago. And really, I haven't dabbled too much into polyamory myself. It was more just like this person introduced me to a way of thinking where I started to realize that the narratives I have been clinging to are maybe not all of reality. Yes. And that was crucial. And then he's also just been like, so my disease is that I don't trust anyone. You're not alone in that, but anyway. (laughs) My disease is that I don't trust anyone. And so I'm more comfortable binge eating and hating myself than I am showing up. Right. And this person has been because, I do think because of how they practice polyamory or non-monogamy, their emphasis is on extreme loving transparency about all things. Right. And this was, especially with a man, this was like the first time I started to develop a relationship with another human being where I was like, this person's fucking trustworthy. Right. Like, right. wow. Like, right. That's what this feels like. Yeah. Even, like, it's like hard things just were said very easily. Right. This person was also nine years sober and done a lot of work on themselves, which I don't think like they yeah. they're heavily into service and yeah. the program, and I don't think that's a coincidence. No, no, it can't <laughs> be. Um, yeah. but anyway, so I'm actually seeing him later today. He's a great human, super grateful for him. But he planted a seed for me of recovery, and I I was just very active in my eating disorder still. This is when the pandemic was thriving. Yeah. Um, and I had gained a bunch of weight when I lived with my mom because I had been binging that whole time. And yeah. so now my obsession became losing that weight. Right. I was just like, I'm running out of time in life. Like, if I don't fucking stop ruining my life, yeah. I'm not going to live. Right. So my obsession became exercise. Yeah. Um, and I lost some weight. I don't know how much. I don't think I was weighing myself at the time, but I just knew that I felt different. Yeah. And with this new relationship with exercise came a mania in me and a sense of being like, I am peaking. Right. And, um... Basically, what happened in, like, 2021 was I was seeing multiple people that felt powerful. I was exercising. Powerful in a fucked up way. Right. In a projection way. Yeah, yeah. Not a healthy way. And I'm owning that. Um, was exercising. I was, like, I had this sense of, like, escalation. But this is all ego shit. And... The summer, last summer, I was, like, super manic and high. Yeah. I mean, I was sober, but I was manic and high on my body and exercise and feeling powerful and just, like, exploring things. Like, I was trying OnlyFans. Like, I was, like, exploring my body in a way, but it was all surface level. It was, like, I couldn't leave my house without wearing, like, a pound of foundation. Right. Because I, like, needed to be super hot. Right. Like, I was creating this manic avatar. Right. Um, 
that was sprouted from the bottom of binging at my mom's and then out of desperation creating an exercise addiction and that exercise addiction created this manic avatar that thought it was peaking and so shortly after that so this was last September so about a year ago and this is where this is where like yeah the bottom is really happening for me right um I started not being able to maintain the avatar of course and I was like doing like upkeeping this social life I had created but my binging started returning. Right. Because I had a short reprieve with the mania from yeah. the exercise and restriction. Yeah, the exercise bulimia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I started to crash where I was binging again and going through, like, life changes. Like, I thought I wanted to leave my career and start something else. Really, I just needed to leave that job. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was, like... No sense of, like, safety or peace. I was questioning everything. And I felt really attached to this avatar I created and, like, the social status mm-hmm. that I thought, like, I was, like, I'm getting attention from men. Like, right. these men want to know who I am. Da, 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 da. And I just couldn't upkeep the physical avatar anymore. And yeah. I my binging increased and it was spiraling and spiraling and escalating and I felt a larger disconnection from myself and who people thought I was. Right. And it got to the point where I one day I decided to block all of my contacts. I deleted my social media. I didn't talk to my friends. Like I dropped off. Right. And I quit my career and I got a job at the gym. Because I was like, I just want to be around healthy people. Fuck everyone in my life. Right. And really, this was just my disease, like, screaming and ruling my life. Um, so I went into a seven-month period of isolation. Yeah. Where I had no friends. I just was like, I'm going to work at the gym. I'm going to get the best body. I'm going to get my body back. I'm going to stop binging. I'm going to, like, maintain that peak avatar. Like, I'm going to get her back. And I just ended up binging and binging and binging and binging and binging and binging. And meanwhile, working at a gym where I was, like, looking at myself in the mirror every day. And I had never had such excruciating body dysmorphia. And... I was around all these people who were looking to me, I felt, to have healthy habits. And I was, my disease was, like, never as bad. Right. Um, And my self-hatred was so terrible. Um, And my body dysmorphia was so terrible. And I felt, like, the most out of control and isolated and truly scared. Yeah. Um... Like, I remember I was suicidal, and I remember, like, I had to call my parents and be like, I'm scared. I called my parents. I also, I texted my friend, the guy who introduced me to polyamory. He was, like, the only person I was meeting, I allowed to stay in contact with because I trusted him. Yeah. Um, I was just like, I'm suicidal. Like, I don't know what to do, but I know I have to externalize this. And I remember my mom came over, and I was talking to her, and I was like, I feel like I'm underwater. 
and like I feel like I'm going further underwater and like normal life is like up there and I don't know how to get back right and um it was really scary because I felt like I was losing touch with reality like the idea of like getting through a day without binging felt impossible and then I was going to a gym and staring at myself in a mirror and I was just like this is so confusing and messy and I don't know how to get out right so I quit my job at the gym whenever I'm super desperate I like bring my parents and I'm like yo I'm fucked up right now like we I need help and um I quit my job and we were like Maybe we should go to, maybe I should go to IOP. I decided not to. IOP is intensive outpatient. I decided not to. I was like, I'm going to piece together like a treatment team. Um, and it's been really slow, but, uh, I at one point realized that part of why I was losing my shit was that my life felt meaningless because I was so isolated And this is when I started to realize the extent of my disease and that the core of my disease is isolation. Um, I realized that my disease caused me to isolate and that it thrived off of the isolation and it was this isolation that allowed it to feed itself to the point where my life became meaningless. And with this realization, I also realized that God is source energy and the realization that I have never been separate. I have been connected this whole fucking time, this whole time. But I am growing up in a society that taught me that I had to be an avatar in order to be okay. Right. And my earliest messages were that I was shit. So I've been living in this narrative of being alone and separate and not good enough and then self-soothing that with food and ideas about men that were not actually reality, but I was never fully alive. And what alive is, is showing up and being part of the whole, but it took me seven months of being in my disease and isolating myself to a point where I never have before to realize that isolation is the sickness. It is the narrative that's keeping me sick. And so is my perfectionism. So I want you to dilate on that because we say in the room, it's a disease of isolation. Yeah. So, so why do you think they say that? I just explained it, but let's firsthand experience. So, okay. I was, I was taught that I was isolated as a kid. So I grew up thinking that I was separate and not perfect enough to participate. The point of being on earth and in human form is to connect with other people because that's how we connect with source energy. When you're taught that you're a piece of shit and so you hide to protect yourself because you don't have any other coping skills, you cannot participate in source energy and so your life becomes completely meaningless and you're also obsessed with your own pain because you have no other input. 
except your own pain. And so you think that's all there is. And you are not connected with anything that makes this realm worth it. So let's dilate on for other people. Yeah. Because you keep saying you're taught that you're a piece of shit. So I, I assume that your parents did not look you in the eye and say, oh, you're a piece of shit. Most of my rejection had to do with um, other children. It was peers. Okay, and, so yeah. let's talk about how you, in your story, got the message that you're a piece of shit. First of all, let's unpack that. What is What does that mean? Um, I mean, so a very concrete example in childhood is I remember someone had... They were having a birthday party, and I wasn't invited, and... So you're not worthy. Yes, but listen to this. Yeah. Someone said... Someone else told me that the reason I wasn't invited was because the girl... I think her name was Alexa. Alexa said to the group of people who were invited, Jess isn't invited because she's going to eat all of the pizza. So... Not only is my eating disorder evident to other people in elementary school, but I am now not worth participating in the world. Right. Yeah. So you're exposed and humiliated and, re- and abandoned and rejected, which is exactly what we're, what I have been taught is why we seek the ego dream is to make sure that we don't get rejected or abandoned. Do you see what I'm saying? Say it one more time. Okay. (laughs) So the thing with the ego dream is here's how you will be included. If you do these things, then you can participate. If you don't, we will reject you. We will abandon you here. And we will move on without you. And then, of course, as human beings, we're wired to need people. I unfortunately have seen, which they're not allowed to do anymore, but in the 50s or 60s, they videotaped what happens when you raise a monkey in isolation. It is an image that I will never forget. You know, the damage that taking a, it was one of the small monkeys, away, raising them completely in isolation, no touch, no nothing, and then trying to bring them back. And it was, like I said, I've never forgotten it. That was when I was 18. So we are wired for connection. That's why when you do the fourth step, it gets down to, is it your social instinct, your security, your, you know? Like, because these are all the instincts that drive you to be included and to include other people, right? The social instinct. So it sounds like right away, you know, again, in the young person's world, with your peers at school. That's why school is so important and yet so damaging. It's like, this is where you start to get the message. Will we include you? 
or will we exclude you? And to be excluded is death. That's what I mean. I've been dead, like, my whole life, basically, until recently, because of that message. Like, I have been on... I've... The relationships I've had, like, there's definitely good in them, but I was not there. You know? Like, they were, like, seeds, and I'm, like... I've been dead because I was rejected, and so I always had a secret world of addiction. So let's go back to that for a second, because one incident is not enough, right? Because there's always the repair. So if you had had that one incident, but then there were all these other positive incidences, that incident would not be so emblematic. Um, so it was one incident that was reinforced along the way. Well, I also got messages about my body being wrong. Right. So, I mean, shopping was hard for me as a kid. I was overweight. It, it was, you know, like, not, not to the extent where it was like a medical, medical grade, but enough for kid to be othered by kids to be othered yeah so again the message the reinforcement of we are not going to include you the warning we're not going to include you is either having experiences where you were actually literally not included like the birthday mark or these constant messages of you know this is now me like if you gain weight, you're not going to be included. You know, like, these messages of, like, be careful about this, otherwise you're not going to be included. Am I making sense? Yeah. I was this... So, it's very confusing, and it's also strange, too, because, like, I'm someone that's very in touch with my thoughts, but I've always had this experience of, like... Knowing there's an external message, really wanting to obey that, but my behavior in private totally contradicts that. So, in in childhood, I got a lot of messages about not being able to show up or not worthy enough to show up and connect. I got that in my neighborhood. Like, kids would be mean to me when we were playing, like, games. Right. And my sister we have an interesting relationship, but she would get mad at other kids because she saw them othering me. Like, right. Like this was real that this was happening. Yeah. Um, but I was, my earliest memories are of being othered and of binge eating. And it's like, I knew I've known as a child that none of this makes sense because what I want is connection, but I'm binging. Like, it's totally invert. It's like an yeah. inverted thing. Yeah. It, it doesn't make sense. The right. only thing I know that makes sense is that I am now so fucking desperate to not have a meaningless life that I am willing to do things to put the food down so that I can connect so that right. I don't die having not lived. Right. <laughs> you know, like. Yeah. yeah. It's very painful. It's just really fucking wild. Well, um, 
sorry, I hope I'm not, like, derailing. No. It's just, like, the thing about realizing that, like, the perfectionism is what keeps you in your disease, and your disease is what keeps you alone, and when you're alone, you can't be alive, like, right. that, for me, that switch went off, where I was just like, oh my god, I see it, like, I see why I've not been able to recover, because I've been so alone in my perfectionism, so, and feeling like I can't, I'm not allowed to show up, right, and because I'm not perfect, but, that's like that's when you were like I want to talk about recovery not being perfect for the people who like don't do it linearly like that's why I fucking gave up right because I just was like I'm not waking up abstinent like I couldn't I couldn't put all the pieces together yet yeah yeah um the step one journey is very very painful But, I, you know, like, I, I sent you the pitch that I did on Monday. It's like, I didn't get here because I thought this was a good idea. And I didn't have anything better to do with all of my free time. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, I think I'll walk into this base, this church basement. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's just, you know, um, you know, as I say to another sponsor, you didn't develop bulimia because you had nothing better to do or for no reason. That's really kind of like, you know, again, the waking up to step one. It's, you know, it's a lot of time for people, you know, this wasn't, this didn't have to be my story, but they wake up to the symptoms first. You know, like they don't know the cause. They just know what's happening in the present. And they just know that this behavior that they're doing is killing them and it's painful Mm -hmm. and um and i've worked with people in the past where you know i'll say you know so what was your life like growing up and they'll say it was fine and i'll just say okay because i'm not i'm not gonna rip that skin off i did when i was really young try to force people into a uh, an awareness state but now i don't you know, and sure enough, because whatever denial armor they need, they need. They need it. You know? You talked to me about the armor and the layers of it. Yeah. That was my story, too. You know, and again, so that's why when you're telling your story and, you know, and I've heard you a couple of times say, I just wasn't ready, I just wasn't ready. It's like, it all worked. You know what I mean? You wouldn't be here today unless the Chicago thing happened. You probably wouldn't be here at all unless your dad. I mean, you could have found different ways to be here. But the point is is that what I want to encourage is is that here's how often people hold the story of their story in the past. And there are a lot of people who do this. They came in to 12 step a long time ago. It, you know, they weren't ready. They left. And they tell that story as if it was a mistake or like it had no impact, you know what I mean? And it's like, I don't think that's true, you know? Seeds. Exactly. I, I believe in seeds. Yes. 100%. That is how I've like 
I have been, even even my ex who died, yeah. like, he planted seeds, yes, spiritual seeds. Right. I believe in these things. Me too. You know. You store them. Yeah. So that what if you hold the story instead of saying, oh, I came in, you know, 15 years ago or five years ago, but I wasn't ready. What if instead of saying it that way, that, um, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago, I was looking for a place to land when I was, for when I was ready. And so I found it. Mm-hmm. I took notes, and then, but I had to go out, but I, you know, it's kind of like if I, you know, another way to say that, it's like, you know, I'm 52, let's say that I'm I'm not, but let's say that I start thinking, like, where do I want to retire? And so I start scoping out places, you know, and then I drive to a small town, and I'm like, this is it. Mm-hmm. And then I leave it, and I come back and then in 10 15 years when I'm like all right then I go to the I know where that town is you know so but again we're kind of and people I'm sure listening know that Jess and I we're not robots we can't we can't take away our own spiritual belief systems so some people don't believe this at all you know because it doesn't fit with their concept of God or whatever it is. It, we just happen to agree with each other. Um, so, which is for me, it's, you know, that your spiritual journey has been all of it. All of it has been your spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. There's no like, well, I did this and that and that and that. And now my spiritual journey starts. It's all connected. Yes. You know, and what I mean by that is, and this is really, this is definitely, like, I've always had a part that is all about connection and wants, and I've always had a wound of of this bleeding and on fire disconnection, and they have been alternatingly grabbing the steering wheel through my whole life. Now I can say that more and more time in recovery, you know, my spiritual self is holding the wheel. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean like my disease can't grab it, you know, and send me, but I get to course correct pretty quickly now. Right? So if I tell my story in a certain way, which I don't think is true, I tell it as if my disease had the wheel the whole time and everything I did was disease but I don't think that's true I think that it's like there were definitely there was definitely a period of time where my disease was driving but my spiritual self was still in the car and still had influence you know still like it was still there you know, there was no part of my life that my heart wasn't involved in some way. Now, it could have been involved behind the armor, but it had power and influence. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. You know, I wouldn't have made it at all. So, you know, in that journey where my disease was in control, 
My disease might take me to a place, but my heart would notice someone. And even in that darkness, this woman and I may start talking about like spirituality or something. Something that just kept the light going. Um, and then, you know, the, the part of me that longed for connection and that part of me that was always connected to source, it had influence. It, and it had enough that I'm here. You know, so I just, I think again, the way that we tell the story of what it was like, what happened is, is we have to be careful with that, I think, because you can tell the story in a way where now you have internalized rejection yourself. You are still perpetuating the disease in the sense of rejecting and abandoning your younger self. Like, don't do that. You know what I mean? Don't don't be like, well, that whole part of my life was wrong until I got into recovery. I definitely think that this has had a purpose. Like, 100%. Because I'm not going to live a life that is surface level. Um, well, let's break that down a little bit. Because... I don't want to get into any, and this is me, surface level in a sense of the avatar. Because you can have money and whatever. You can have these accolades. And it's what are you doing with it? You know what I mean? Like there are people out there who, who have seemingly have won the ego dream. But they're, they're not using that as some sort of, like, bolster for them, their sense of self. Yeah. I've been worshipping those things my whole life. Exactly. And that's the difference. They don't... You could take it away from them and they'd be fine. You know, they don't... They're not clinging to those things. So, the lack of spiritual message in my life or like that presence, yeah, it's it has the narrative that I've been like, oh, I'm rejected from this narrative, and if I can get inside the narrative, exactly. then I'll be okay. Then I'll be okay. That narrative is based on the world of form. Right. And the world of fear. Right. And because I have reached such a bottom right. trying to exist in that world, yeah. it pushed me yeah. to be like, I'm, I mean, I don't know how, but like, this is the gift. Yeah. Is that it pushed me to being like, there has got to be more than this. Right. And yeah. I, I to me that is source. Absolutely. And the for me, the what I'm coming to understand about twelve step programs in a new way now that I didn't understand before is like the act of service it can be just showing up to hear someone else talk that's because exactly right humans need to feel connection in order to regulate and be of use in the world or just to even if it's it doesn't even have to go into any sort of verb like that humans need connection and to be seen 
And so when you go to a meeting, you are being of service. And I also, I remember being young and hitting this place too of like, oh, me going to a meeting is being of service to others, not just myself. Because again, I am sitting there and some woman is, it's open mic night and she's going to speak her truth and I am going to hear her and see her. And I'm not going to be repulsed. And so in a sense, I am a loving, compassionate witness to whatever it is she's sharing. And in that sense, it's the recovery moment. So disease is disconnect, recovery is connection. She is unveiling herself and telling me the truth of who she is, hopefully, you know what I mean, to the best of her ability, you know. Over time, she may get really good at it, but or she may start out right away with being able to just, here's my soul, here's what's going on for me. And I'm going to sit across from her, and I am going to listen with, with loving compassion, which is all I think we really want, right? Is I'm going to show you the truth of who I am, and I'm afraid that you're going to reject me and abandon me. And I'm going to sit here and go, that thought never occurred to me. You know what I mean? Like, you have permission to show up exactly as you are in this circle. And you don't have to apologize. There has, there no preface required. You know, just, you sit down, you say, hi, my name's this. Tell me the truth of who you are. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you. That was an honor for me that you shared yourself with me. Because, and this is where I was sharing, like, for me... This is what I get out of 12 step. Now, some people have other spiritual practices where there's this permission to show up and and I but I don't live in those countries or on those reservations, you know what I mean? This is mine. This is mine. And so that's why I'm so invested in it and making sure that, you know, young people can come in and 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 have what I had, which is a safe place to land. Like, yeah, you know, it's exhausting. You know, I use the analogy of like life is like living in the ocean with no boat. You know what I mean? You're just out there living there. Is and that why you identify as a mermaid? And then the, well, there's another reason for that, uh, but it's related. And then meetings are floating docks, you know? Mm. The mermaid thing, which I've shared about before, is the, you know, Ani Eastman quote from back, you know, because again, I got in young. So before The Little Mermaid came out was the honest income. I must be a mermaid. Um, I have no fear of depth, but a great fear of shallow living. <clears throat> and so that was the quote that was like, oh my God, I'm a mermaid. You know, and then it just started to work with the analogy of being in the ocean and stuff like that. So, you know, and then The Little Mermaid came out and ruined it, but then I just held on to it. And now it's kind of, you're owning it. I, you know, I, I didn't let that take it away from me. And the beautiful thing about the Little Mermaid is that now all those women are have grown up and they want mermaid, you know, stuff. And so now I've got like wonderful Little Mermaid, you know, people buy me mermaid shit all the time. It's adorable, you know. Before you couldn't find anything that had a mermaid on it, you know, and now it's everywhere and people give me gifts. So I love it. You know, I've come full circle. But that's the mermaid thing. And also because, yeah, I think that um, 
you know, the life is like living in the ocean, you know, and, and the weather, you know, you don't get, you're not in control of it, you know, and meetings are a place where you just get to rest. Your family is supposed to be that too. Whatever family you create, you know, is a place for you to land. You know what I mean? Like, oh, here's where I can just stop and and rest. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And drop down, you know, um, deeper into myself. Yeah, I don't, I don't have that. And... I mean, again, I have a family who loves me to the, in the way that they know how. Exactly. But um, I think that, yeah, the thing with being an addict of any kind is we are more comfortable with ourselves because we don't trust the world. Right. And that's why our addictions have been great. Let's restate that a little bit. We are more comfortable, be- more comfortable being alone with ourselves. Because I don't think that you, we can say we're more comfortable with with ourselves. That is very true. Because we're also numb. Right. We're we're comfortable being alone by ourselves, but we're totally fucking numbed out. Right. Yeah. If we're disconnected and disassociated, so we've got the whole I need to disconnect from myself, and then in my disconnected state, you know, oftentimes a lot of us, not all of us, you know, I don't I don't want to make the mistake of speaking for everyone. We we don't know every addict or overeaters, but the people that we know, you know, it's like, um, I need to disconnect from this pain of being rejected and abandoned. So now I'm going to find a way that keep that comforts me and disconnects me at the same time. For us, it happened to be food, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And then now on top of that, I, being around people is painful. Because it just wakes up the feeling of being rejected and abandoned. So it is, you know, so the only way that I can be with people is either to, is to eat my way through the experience so that I'm like, you know, morphine dripping, you know, so, you know, I'm eating in every social event I have or to completely disassociate from myself, create this false avatar so that if I get rejected, this is the avatar that you're, it's not me. You know, I'm safe behind. So many mirrors. Right. Like so many mirrors, so much reflection and rejection. And yes. So then the only time that I feel actually safe is when I'm alone because I don't have to worry about you abandoning me because I'm just alone. But then being alone just brings up my pain of isolation. So even when I'm alone, I now have to eat. You know, I still, I'm still trapped in needing to comfort myself from the pain of not wanting to be me. Like, I don't want to be this person. Yet there's a part of me, the part of me that saved my life, you know, the God particle in me that's connected to source, that is trying to tell me, you know what I mean? There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. And depending on, and this is where we lose a lot of people. You know, a lot of people to mental illness, to drug addiction, to death or whatever, to suicide, to whatever self-destructive behavior because of that internal struggle, you know. And sometimes, like, there's a story that we're all pretty familiar with, which is, you know, um, 
I'm going to butcher this, but the story of like, you know, everyone has a white wolf and a black wolf in them. And, and, you know, you know, let's say, because we don't want to get colorist, let's say that it's the black wolf that wants to live and the white wolf that just wants to be annihilated. Well, which wolf are you going to feed? And sometimes, you know, people really do self-destruct and we have to respect that behavior, you know? So, and here's what I mean by that. Sometimes I'm sitting across from someone and I resonate with their internal struggle and I am trying to fight for life and I'm going to make choices, you know, even if they're small, tiny course corrections. So it looks like I'm still in my disease, but what I can't see yet, what other can't, people can't see it is I've made this tiniest course correction and then I'm going to make another tiny one and tiny one and tiny one and it's going to lead me to having this conversation with someone right well I'm sitting across from someone and I see that they have an opportunity to course correct and they don't take it and I see that they're going the other way and then this is where we have to practice you know giving people the dignity to make their own choices even if that choice is death and it's like, I can't rescue you. I want to rescue you because I'm actually wanting to rescue myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing in you that you're turning more towards destruction. And so I think if I can stop you from going into destruction, that somehow I'm acting out, you know, what I need to be doing for myself, you know, but I've become outwardly focused. So I'm seeing you make the choices because I'm blind to that I have these same choices. Do you see what I'm saying? I, I, this is where codependency comes from. My center of self has now become you. And so your choices and your behaviors, I'm now trying to control. You know, because I've externalized myself onto you. And it's very painful, and I've had to watch this, to pull back and go... I see what an amazing person you are. And I see that you're on a course for self-destruction. And I have to remind myself that you are your own spiritual being, living your spiritual life. And I don't understand why you're making these choices, but I'm going to give you the dignity you deserve, which is to allow you to make them. Now, at some point in this relationship, I can let you know if you continue to make these choices, I am going to have to distance myself. If you're going to go down, I'm not going down with you. It's another way of saying it. And that's where they may or may not decide, you know, to make a different choice. This is where, you know, the definition of hitting a bottom of one of the working definitions of hitting a bottom is that you have lost or or are about to lose something that means more to you than your addiction, than your investment in the self-destruct. For some people, it's the threat of divorce. That's enough. For some people, the divorce has to happen. You know? So sometimes the the spouse can say, if you don't stop this, I'm going to leave you. And that's enough. They're about to lose something that means more to their addiction. So then they course correct. But sometimes that's not enough. 
You know, the disease is telling them she won't really, or he won't really leave you. You know what I mean? Like, and then, so then the person, the spouse has to go like, okay, now I've told you, I've communicated to you that I can't continue on this journey with you, right? I've, I've set a boundary and said, if you continue, I will leave. Well, let me tell you something, sister. If you say something like that, you better be prepared to leave. Because if you don't follow through when you cross a line, now your, your words mean nothing to the person. Mm. So then, you know, if you see that they're going to do it, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing, but you need to leave. And that's why there are rooms of support to, to help you get away from that. So, but this goes back to the whole, like, having a part of us the whole time that was fighting for our own lives. The entire time, we had a part of us that was constantly seeking source. And for you and me, because we're sitting here right now, we had enough, you know, we had enough pull to source that it kept course correcting. Now, how long it took to course correct is everyone's story. Hmm. You know, for some people, it was like, it took five years. For some people, it was like, it took 20. It's like... You know, it there's there's no value judgment on that. You had a lot to learn. You know what I mean? Like your if I I got into the rooms really young, that doesn't mean I won. Right? That doesn't put any higher value on me. Maybe because let's just get, you know, a little like metaphysical not here not for it. You know what I mean? But let's just say that it's like, and I'm using this as an example. It doesn't necessarily mean that I ascribe to this belief system. But let's like say, you know, all right, I want to, and I did. I went to college, women's studies major, came out of women's studies, and immediately started a youth group for girls. My calling has been, you know what I mean? I want to save women from themselves. You know, like this internalized patriarchy and misogyny so that now we're just killing ourselves. This is what I want to do with my life. Well, maybe it's like, all right, well, let's get in really young. Let's get into recovery really young so that you can work through your crazy ass shit enough that you're not dangerous to other people. You know, meaning like, because there are some people out there who have a little bit of recovery and, and then go on and, and sponsor and create a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, okay, let's, you know, let's get you in young. And again, I, always, I also tell people I came into recovery young in the Bay Area. No one used the word God in the East Coast or in the East Bay. No one. Mm-hmm. If I had walked into a meeting and they were using the word God at that age, I would have turned away. So again, circumstantial, you know what I mean? Like that's why I got in so young because I was young and the, and the location was right. Right. You know, it's a little, the right place at the right time. Um, there was a lot of agnostic recovery community. I didn't know any of this at the time. I just knew that I was in a 12 step meeting and no one said the word God. It was always higher power. So, you know, and then when I was in my late 20s and got into OA, 
they said the word God, I was already invested in 12 step, but they would say like good orderly direction, you know, good on, you know, they would, they made it an acronym so that even at 29, when I balked at that word, people were very quickly to tell me, oh, it, you know, but no one said God as we understand him. No one said that. So again, you know, these were all the things that made it so that I came in young and stayed. As opposed to if I were someone else and came in young and heard that, I would have left. And my journey would have been completely different. You know? So I think this is a great step one. Is there anything that um, you want to add? I kind of want to leave it here and then we can come back when you're like, you know, we can do a step two. Um... Because you're two months in? Uh, less than that. Well, in terms of, like, my bottom line abstinence, my abstinence is changing um, because I'm finding that, I mean, you know, a type of binge that wouldn't have been a bottom line binge when I was eating sugar and flour, I did one of those this week, even though it's not, it wasn't on sugar and flour or gluten, and I, I made myself so sick that I was nauseous. And I was like, whoa, like, your bottom level abstinence is changing. Right. Um, so I have, like, 39 days of my bottom line abstinence. But the bar for, for how to remain spiritually abstinent for me, it's changing every week right now. Yeah. Because I'm, I talked to you about this, where I'm like, for me, getting absent has been really fucking messy. Like, I've yeah. been like... I'm still emotionally eating right now. Like, is that fucking wrong? And then you're like, no, no, like that's okay. And I had to talk to, so someone, so this person is amazing. This person is how I came back to OA. Um, but she was just like, talk to people with a lot of time, talk to them about your abstinence because that was another thing from why I left yeah. initially was I thought I had to go from a to Z with abstinence and I'm learning more and more every day. I'm also getting a taste of freedom, which is also giving me willingness. Yeah. So like, like this morning, so Tuesdays I go into the office. Yeah. Every Tuesday for the past three weeks, I have been compulsively eating. And this past Tuesday was the day that I basically binged on fruit and dried fruit to the right. point where I was sick. And then I was so in my compulsion that I bought more of it. Yeah. And I was like, fruit is no longer abstinent for me. Yeah. Um, but like this morning, like I have so much anxiety about going to the office, but I know that I'm being presented this challenge because I want to know yeah. how to live in the world freely yeah and it's like this one day a week is enough for me to experiment process right figure out what I need come back yeah try again but I have so much anxiety about this experience because my whole life and working in offices I've been binging right and today I was like oh my god what you need to do is literally when there's too much room for the disease you have to replace the disease with God. Right. Which is, these are new thoughts I'm able to have. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, next Tuesday, I'm going to 
go to an AA meeting before work. Yeah. I'm going to hit a noon meeting. Yeah. I'm going to tell my coworkers, I now take a Zoom class from 12 to 1. Right. I'm going to hit a meeting. I won't be able to talk, but I can be there and listen. And then I'm going to hit at least one meeting after work. Right. So I'm just like, this is how sick I am. Hey, I've had to do that. I always tell people there was a time in my recovery where one day I went to four meetings in one day because I couldn't be alone with the food. I need to hear that. You know? I need to hear that because this is, I've been unable to get better. Yeah. Because my disease is so, it is so in there. You know what I would do if I were in that place, if I were you? I would do all that and then every hour I would text someone. Every hour. I yeah. would just be, because again, here's a couple of things that I believe in and people disagree with me and that's fine. Absolutely. Number one, I believe in bottom line abstinence, which is a yes, no. So where does my behavior turn into stabbing myself? For me, that's sugar and bulimia, no sugar, no bulimia. At that point, basically it's like, you know, an alcoholic drinking. Now in between that, my food can get really sloppy. And that's where I have to learn harm reduction for me, harm reduction. That in the beginning, I had to find, like, because I was holding on to abstinence like it was a diet. And I was trying to be perfect. So, and I was failing at that miserably. So I was like, all right, where where's the yes, no? Like AA and um, NA and everything. Where's my yes, no abstinence? Okay, sugar, absolutely not purging, any bulimic behavior, exercising, anything, laxatives, anything that's bulimia. And for people who don't know, bulimia is I'm going to eat an excess amount of food and then I'm going to do something to correct that behavior. So I'm either going to restrict the next day, I'm going to take um, laxatives to try and flush it out as quickly as possible, I'm going to purge, or I'm going to exercise like a crazy person. That is bulimia. I do a behavior and then I try to correct it. Mm. Um, so those are my two bottom line and then it took a long time once I set like that line in the sand of like okay this is a clear yes no abstinence now there is a range of behavior and then it becomes like you know you don't have to use these words but like I would say clean or sloppy like my food was really sloppy today and then I would have to practice using the tools um, very poorly in the beginning. I mean, not me poorly, but failing a lot and whatever with like, okay, how do I have three meals with, and I had a, a food plan where it was three meals with three metas, which were small snacks. Because again, as a sugar addict, I had to regulate my blood sugar. Mm. So, and and some and letting myself have like these harm reduction meals where it's like I remember having rice cakes, you know, for every meal because yeah, I'm like this I've is the best that. I can do yeah, today, and yeah. it worked. You know what I mean? And it and it was recovery because trust me, r- rice cakes wasn't what I wanted. You know, I remember like and it just became like all right, and it took a long time, but. Over a long period of time, my food got cleaner and cleaner and cleaner because, you know, my connections to program got deeper and deeper and deeper. So in the beginning, yeah, it was a shit show, but it counted. It's what got me here. You know what I mean? It's kind of like those, you know, montage scenes that you see in movies where whatever the sports person is or 
you know, the workout person is, you see them in the beginning sucking so bad, you know what I mean, at whatever it is they're trying to do and falling and whatever. And then you see them keep doing it and keep doing it and the end of the montage is that they're, you know, they've made that jump or, you know what I mean, now they're working out like crazy. So, and so that was my sort of recovery montage. But in the, when I hit the bottom that I talked about, the second, my first major relapse, and where it's like, okay, I'm going to die from this disease, is when it was like, all right, I am going to have to be completely selfish in this program and reach out as often as I need to. That's me right now. Yeah. And just like... (laughs) I literally bookending with people, um, like sometimes 10 minutes at a time, but I would try for an hour, you know, I would just try for one hour at a time. And I have, I have friends in reprogram where sometimes they'll be like, whatever's going on, they'll go through a period and they'll be like, okay, I'll, I'll text you, um, in an hour. I'm like, I'm here for it. You know what I mean? I get it. I'm here for it. So, you know, the willingness to do whatever it takes yeah, to is, save your own life. I'm realizing that, and I haven't, like, that is the difference between me today and me even, like, yesterday. You know, it's like every day I'm just being like, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. You just have an insane disease because your inner child is so wounded. Yeah. And so it's just being like, okay how do we replace all of the pain management? Because that's what I've been doing my whole life is pain management. How do we replace that with source healing? And and that's what is great about meetings is because meetings are about connection. And that's what source is, is being like, we are all made of the same shit. There is no separation. And so it's, leaning into that and then also being of service by being like I'm here hearing you yes yeah the other thing is is that what we talked about let's end with this because um I know that you actually have to go soon um which is that um and you liked this one too which is this is why I talk about recovery as moving to a foreign country but right now you know so just to unpack this and I always used the Spain and at the time and you could use Asia it doesn't matter but the time is to pick a foreign country where not only is the language different but it the culture is so completely different and um and at the time uh, that I thought of this analogy was I you know knew people who were from Spain so it's the idea that it's like like let's say that you right now recovery or getting to this place of connection is a country that you've never been to you know what I mean like you knew it existed um and so it's like all right so let's say that today you sat down with me and you said I want to move to France I want to move to Japan Bali whatever it is right it's like okay well you know and let's say that one time you flew there and it was overwhelming and you binged your whole time there and you came back. You know I've what done, I mean? And, and, and you're that. like, right. So it's like, okay, <laughs> let's, let's really think about this. Instead of this being some sort of whimsical, like, 
geographic cure, you actually want to, all right, well, um, and then I would say to you, that's a great idea. What do you, what do you know about it? And you're like, well, I hear it's a really great thing, place to be. And it's the problem. I'm like, okay, how about, you know, you, we get some books, you know what I mean? Why don't you go to the library and, you know, like literally if you wanted to move to another country and even if, you know, but recovery is more, this is the other reason why I like Spain is because I was like, okay, we're on the West coast. You want to get to a life of connection where you love yourself and everything. I'm like, okay, that would be like saying, let's move to Spain. Oh, and by the way, you have to walk there. (laughs) So the journey, you know, and on the journey though, with a good sponsor is like, okay, Jess, we're, we're walking there. Um, uh, go to that library. I'm not going to do it for you. You're the one that says I'm on my journey. You know what I mean? Like go to the library, um, get a traveler's guide to Spain. Oh, and by the way, now 12 steps, right? 12 step homework. Now you have to sign up for a Spanish class, you know? And your ability to do that is like, it's all on you. Like, you're the one that has to go to the class. You're the one that has to listen. Oh, and by the way, I want you to start watching Spanish television and listening to Spanish radio. You know (laughs) what I mean? Like, one hour a day. I mean, again, the investment. But also, if the reason why I like this analogy is it's like, lower your expectations of what is reasonable to expect from yourself. You don't come to me today and say, all right, I'm in. I am in. I want to live in Spain. Let's go. You know what I mean? And then just be like, oh, I'm, I'm not getting the language. I don't understand intransitive verbs. I'm like, woman, it's a journey. You know what I mean? Like, you have to learn. We have to unlearn and learn which is again why i like that analogy is you you speak english and you think like an american we have to introduce you to a new language and get you to start to think even in a whole different way and it's and it's just going to take the repetition and the repetition the repetition and the boring and the fucking dull repetition and then like me what we were talking about before we started recording is finding ways to keep this fresh for yourself, you know, finding and then sort of exploring the country. Sorry. See? That's a good, yeah. It's actually an OA fellow. Yeah. But again, like, okay, like, okay, I've read all those books. Okay, great. Why don't you go to a, you know, Spanish kindergarten school and volunteer? I mean, finding ways to keep the program fresh for you. So with that, do you have any, let's, we're getting a lot of cosmic messages that it's time to stop. (laughs) No, I mean, I just really appreciate this space and that last message that you had or that you shared for me and for everyone else, because my part of what has been, what has kept me in the disease is the perfectionism piece, because it's. When you are living in a paradigm where perfection is the only thing you're allowed to be, Mm -hmm. then it's 
very hard to be in the mess. Right. And I did better being in the shit, like the darkest shit, and dreaming of being perfect than I, like I never learned how to walk through the messy part. Yeah. And so that analogy was beautiful and... I am relying heavily on people with time because I am like, my way does not work. And hearing messages about this process and hearing how other people found their absence and learned Spanish with the analogy and like learned the different time zones or like, I've, I don't know how to do that. No one did. It's really just. You know, no one did. No one knew. You just came in and, you know, fortunately for us, you know, the rooms were there. Old timers were there, you know, and they just shared enough for the, for you for that day. You know, enough. That's literally why it's like a one day at a time program. Because you have to bring your focus down to, look, stop, don't worry about the future right now. You, I, I can't worry too much about the future. I see it, but I can't really put my focus there. My job is to be present and to be present in my life today and to show up as much as I can in every moment, present and be authentic authentically me that's what my little girl wants is that full loving embrace of who she is exactly as she is that's it that that's my that's why Earl H says if you go to bed tonight sober and abstinent you win Mm. period you know I'm taking care of her Exactly. All right. Thank you all for joining us. More will be revealed.